All I can say is God is good. Amen. We've read the scripture earlier, but if you'll take your Bibles once again and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Back in 1995, my wife Bobby and I lived in Baton Rouge while we served in a church there. And I had begun my seminary education at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. And I commuted every day from Baton Rouge to New Orleans and back home to Baton Rouge. I would listen to a Christian radio station every day as I traveled. Uh, The station was based out of Lafayette. And this radio station had a preacher that they featured every day at the same time by the name of R.W. Schambach. Now, R.W. Schambach was a Pentecostal preacher, but I chose to listen to him anyway because you got to understand, teenagers, it was 1995, our options were limited. (laughs) We didn't have XM radio and all the different options that we have today so number one, it was preaching, and I wanted to hear preaching. And, and then I did want to hear what a Pentecostal preacher would preach. But it seemed like every day that I would listen, he would start off his broadcast by encouraging his listeners to turn in their Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Now, most of you probably have never heard of R.W. Schambach, and so you will not appreciate this horrible impersonation that I'm about to do, but, and then those of you who have heard of him, you probably still won't appreciate this impersonation that I'm about to do, but I can just remember driving down the road, and every day, it seemed like every day when he would come on, he would say something to this effect, he'd say, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2. Well, after listening to him for what seemed like months, I began to wonder why every message that he preached was from Acts chapter 2. It was like that was the only chapter in his Bible. I know the day of Pentecost is very important to Pentecostalism, but I began to think, preacher, don't you know that there's 65 other books in the Bible besides the, the book of Acts and And who knows how many chapters besides Acts chapter 2. But before you think that I'm being unfair to our Pentecostal brethren and friends, we Baptists can be just as set in our ways. Very rarely will a Baptist preach from Acts chapter 2. And to be honest with you, I'm not real sure why. In Acts chapter 2, we have some pretty remarkable things that go on. For one, we have the coming of the Holy Spirit in a new way. We might call it the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He's coming now to indwell in the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls. And so we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we have the inception of the church. We have the birth, the beginning of the church. In Acts chapter 2, we have the inauguration of the new covenant. The inauguration of the new covenant replacing the old covenant in Acts chapter 2. And 
And we have the introduction to the gospel message of Jesus Christ right there in Acts chapter 2 as Peter preaches his first message on the day of Pentecost. The book of Acts is a sequel to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and is a faithful testimony of the early church and its inception through its persecution and even with its multiplication. Someone has said that in the book of Acts, we find in chapter 1, Jesus, the Lord Himself, is taken up. In chapter 2, we have the Holy Spirit coming down. And then in chapters 3 through 28, we have the church going forth or going out. And so we have Jesus going up, we have the Holy Spirit coming down, and we have the church going forth or going out. This morning I want to discuss with you what the church needs. What the church needs. I'm thinking of what the church in general needs, but it can be a message that is specific to Kingsville. I put in my notes, if the shoe fits. And so it's a message to the church at large. It's a message to the church in general. But it can be a message to Kingsville if the shoe fits. And so before we look into Acts chapter 2, I want us to go back just one chapter to chapter 1. And would you look with me in verses 12 through 14. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. The Bible reads, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. And here's the they. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These were the men that were found upstairs. All these, verse 14 says, were continually united in what? Prayer. Along with the women, including Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The first thing that I see in our message today that the church needs is the church needs more prayer. Do you notice that before the great and awesome day of Pentecost, the disciples were, according to verse 14, continually united in prayer? They were obeying the command of Jesus that we find in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4 that he told the disciples, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the promise that the Father will send. Jesus had also been telling his disciples about the Father's promise, even as far back as John chapter 14 and verses 25 and 26. Jesus said, I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send Him in my name, 
He will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have told you. So Jesus was telling his disciples, even back in John 14, about this Holy Spirit promise coming from God, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit. Jesus also told his disciples in John chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, it is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Counselor will not come. I've got to go away for the Counselor to come to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. Later in verse 13, he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And so what were the disciples doing? They were in the upper room. They were waiting on the promise of the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, like Jesus had said. However, their waiting was actually praying. Their waiting was actually praying. Do you realize they may have been praying for approximately ten days in that upper room? Approximately ten days they could have been praying. Do you remember what Jesus and the disciples were doing? Right before Jesus went out into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and and then later He would be betrayed by Judas, and then He would be arrested, and then He would be beaten, and then crucified, and the rest of the story. But back up, and do you remember what Jesus and His disciples were doing right before He went to the Garden of Gethsemane? He and his disciples were observing the Lord's Supper or the newly instituted Lord's Supper. They were observing the Passover feast. They were in a large furnished upper room, perhaps the same room that we find here in Acts chapter 1, very likely the same room they had observed the Passover some days before. You can read about that large furnished upper room in Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 13. But this Feast of Weeks, or otherwise known as Pentecost, was 50 days. That's what Pentecost means. It meant 50 from the time of the Passover. And so you had the Passover where Jesus and the disciples were at the large table and and John was leaning upon Him. You have the Passover... And then 50 days later, you were to celebrate Pentecost. That's what Pentecost meant. 50 days from the Passover. But in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, if you're right there, just notice verse 3. Luke records for us, he says, After he, Jesus, had suffered, that is, he died, and then he rose again, he also presented himself alive to the disciples and to many others, by many convincing proofs of his being alive and appearing to them for a period of 40 days, he spoke about the kingdom of God. And so this Pentecost would have been approximately 8 to 10 days from the time of Jesus' ascension, because we, don't, we haven't read about it, but it's right there in Acts chapter 1. Jesus is taken up. And so this Pentecost, this day of Pentecost would have been approximately eight to ten days. I may be off a day or so. 
from the time of his ascension and 50 days from Passover. So even if the disciples were in the upper room not for 10 days, but they were there for 8 days, here's my question. Have you ever tried praying for 8 days? Have you ever tried praying for 8 hours? What about 8 minutes? I'll never forget one Friday night, I had signed up for a one-hour prayer vigil at our church. And, and I went to the church. That's where most of the folks were going to be praying for their one hour. And so I went to the church and I went to the sanctuary and I came down to the what we call the altars, <laughs> the stairs up here at the platform. And, and I began my hour of prayer. I can remember praying for all of my needs because when we pray, we tend to be selfish. I remember praying for all of my needs and I remember praying for all of my family's needs and I remember praying for all of my church's needs and, and then I can remember praying for every missionary that I knew and, or was aware of and then everything else I could even think about, I was praying and praying and praying and I finished and I thought I was through. I thought certainly the next person's going to be here any minute and going to relieve me because my hour is up. And we had a clock in the sanctuary. And when I looked at it, I could not believe my eyes. I had only been praying for about 20 minutes. I said, what in the world am I going to pray for for the next 40 minutes? What do you think the disciples prayed about for eight days? Eight to ten days. Perhaps they prayed for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, to come. Maybe they prayed for their own protection. Maybe they prayed for wisdom and guidance. Because this was definitely new territory for them, wouldn't you say? Maybe they prayed for boldness to declare that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is alive. Maybe they prayed for each other. Wouldn't you have wanted to have heard some of the prayers that were being offered by the disciples in Jesus' name during those eight to ten days? One thing we all know about prayer is that great things happen when God's people pray. Great things happen when God's people pray. Turn with me, just walk with me through a couple of passages in Acts. Just take, just turn to the right just a little bit in Acts chapter 4 and verse 31. The Bible reads, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. Turn with me to Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, we read about the persecution of the early church and even in verse 2, you read about James, the brother of John, who was killed by the sword by King Herod. Verse 3, Peter is arrested and put into prison, guarded by four squads of soldiers. 
and he's to be executed the next day. And verse 5 tells us in chapter 12, verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. What was the church doing? They were praying. They were praying for Peter. They were praying for his protection. They were praying for his release. They were praying. The church praying for Peter. Funny story, skip down to verse 12. We know the angel of the Lord goes in to the prison and he wakes Peter up in the middle of the night and he actually gets Peter out of the prison. And at one point, Peter thinks he's dreaming this. And then in verse 12, he says, when he realized this, that is, he realized this was not a dream, this was for real, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled. And what were they doing? Let me hear you. Many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door in the gateway and a servant by the name of Rhoda comes to answer. She recognizes Peter's voice, but because of her excitement and because of her joy, she doesn't open the door but runs back into the prayer meeting and interrupts it and announces that Peter was standing at the gateway. Now notice this. The people who were praying said, you're crazy. What were they praying for? That's an indictment, isn't it? They're praying for Peter to be rescued. And then Rhoda says, Peter's outside. And they said, you're crazy, Rhoda. How many of us do that in our prayers? We pray for something, but we don't really believe that God's going to answer our prayers. You're crazy, they told her. But she kept insisting, no, it's true. And they said, no, it's his angel. And Peter kept knocking. He's wanting in, don't you think? He's just escaped from jail. He wants in. He wants with his friends. He's knocking. When they opened the door and saw that it was him, he motioned for them to be quiet. And he explained how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He says, report these things to James and the brothers. And then he departed and went a different way at daylight. The next day there was such a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched and didn't find him, he interrogated the guards that were supposed to be watching him, and he ordered their execution. Great things happen when God's people pray. Look with me in chapter 16, just a couple more chapters over. Paul and Silas are in prison. They've been arrested for sharing the gospel and Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were what? They were praying and singing hymns to God at midnight in prison. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. And when the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison were open, he drew his sword and was going to go ahead and kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cries out in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer calls for lights. He rushes in. He falls trembling before Paul and Silas. He's so moved. Do you think he heard their prayers? Do you think he heard their singing of hymns that night? He falls down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorts them out. And listen to what his question is. Sirs, 
What must I do to be saved? <laughs> what, what can I do to have what you have? I'm missing something. I'm empty. I don't have what you have. How can I have what you have? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the message of the Lord along with everyone in his house. And he took them the very same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And right away he and all his family were baptized. He brought them in his house, set a meal before them and rejoiced because he had believed God with his entire household. Great things happen when God's people pray. So if great things happen when God's people pray, it begs us to ask the question, then why do we do so little of it? Some of the greatest moves of God throughout history were started because someone or a group of people prayed. I was uh, really convicted this week when I stumbled across a question that J.D. Greer poses in his book, The Gospel According to Jonah. He asked this question, What if God were to grant to you your prayers for everyone that you prayed for their salvation this week? What if God were to grant to you your prayers for everyone that you prayed for their salvation this week? If God were to grant you your prayers for everyone that you prayed for their salvation this week, how many people would have been born into the kingdom of God? And how much larger would God's kingdom have grown because God granted you your prayers for the salvation of people this week? When I asked myself that question, it hit me like a ton of bricks. What if God's kingdom wouldn't have grown by one person? Because I had failed to pray for their salvation this week. And yet, great things happen when God's people pray. Let's face it. We know we should pray more. Why don't we? Is it a lack of faith? Is it laziness? Is it complacency? Are we more concerned about our own lives and our own careers and our own acquiring of stuff? And our personal pursuits of pleasure and our plans and our dreams that we are too busy to pray to God and to ask for God to save the lost souls of men and women and boys and girls? John MacArthur says, prayer is hard work. It's a selfless act. 
It's mostly private. Someone who wants to be known as spiritual can't be observed as such because where most prayer needs to take place, no one will ever know that you did it but you and God alone. Kingsville, we are blessed to have such a wonderful Bible expositor and teacher and preacher and Brother Bart. We are truly blessed. And maybe sometimes we, we might, I can't speak for you, but maybe we pride ourselves on having a right doctrine or a good theology. And listen, Bible knowledge is good. And we are instructed in God's Word to faithfully handle God's Word with care. And, and we are to pass on to others the, the faith that was once entrusted to us. But Jesus also said on one occasion, My house is to be called a house of what? Prayer. And listen, you, you can't wait for your spiritual leaders, to call everyone to prayer. You're responsible for your own prayers. Maybe you could find someone who could hold you accountable this week and say, help me, I need to pray more. Can you be my prayer partner? Maybe you could find someone that could pray with you during the week. Maybe some of you would feel led to come to the altars and once again, Baptists, we need to weep for the souls of lost men and women. How long has it been that these altars, these so-called altars, these stairs at the platform have found tears on them? Tears because we're praying for people to be saved. Perhaps our Sunday school classes could spend more time praying for the lost. Praying for a holy boldness to share the gospel message with the lost. All I know is that great things happen when God's people pray. Second, I want us to look at our main scripture, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And since we've already read that scripture, let me just jump right in. A, a second thing that the church needs today is not just more prayer, but we need for God to pour out His Spirit upon her. Now, there will never be another outpouring of the Holy Spirit like there was on the day of Pentecost. That was a one-time event. The coming of the Holy Spirit was a, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as well as the very words of Jesus Jesus said that when the Spirit comes, the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. There will never be an outpouring like there was on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is here. He doesn't need to come. He's here. But don't we pray sometimes for God's Spirit to be with us in power? Don't we pray that? Don't we pray for the manifested glory and presence of God in our midst? Don't we pray for His mighty hand of blessing to be upon us? Of course we do. 
Now, there are lots of questions around this passage of Scripture, lots of questions surround this passage. Uh, Why was there the sound of rushing wind? What's up with the tongues of fire? Was it a miracle of speaking or a miracle of hearing? Did the disciples speak other languages or did the people just hear in their own language? Was it languages or was it a heavenly language? Lots of questions that surround this scripture. And I won't answer them all, but we'll go real quickly and tackle some of them. Notice, first of all, in verse 2, suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven. Notice, first of all, that it is a sound. It doesn't say that a rushing wind, a tornado-like wind came in and filled the house where they were. It says the sound of a mighty rushing wind. It was just merely the sound of the wind that they experienced there in um, Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Why wind? Well, wind is one of the symbols of the Holy Spirit. Back in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 7 through 9, Ezekiel says, So I prophesied as I had been commanded, and while I was prophesying, there was a noise. There was a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. And as I looked, tendons appeared on them, flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. So God said to me, Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to it, this is what the Lord God says. Breath, come from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they may live. Ezekiel chapter 37 is the story of the valley of the dry bones that had come to life. They needed breath. Guess what God compares the Holy Spirit to? Wind, breath, the breath of life. Churches need the breath of life. They need the breath of God on their midst or in their midst. John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and he says, I assure you, Nicodemus, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is of flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. And then Jesus uses these very words. Listen carefully. He says, the wind blows where it pleases. And you hear its sound. The wind blows where it pleases. And you hear its sound. But you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus was using the symbol of wind to compare the Holy Spirit. So when we see both of these examples that the Holy Spirit is being compared to wind, which explains why Luke records for us in the Spirit's coming that it was like a sound of a mighty rushing wind. It's the Holy Spirit. What about fire? In Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, remember that God made Himself known to Moses by fire from a flaming bush. Remember, He spoke to Moses and it was a bush that was on fire but wasn't consumed. 
God also made His presence known to the Israelites in the Old Testament by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of what? Fire by night. In Matthew 3, verse 11, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but there is one coming after me that's more powerful than I, and I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with what? Do you all remember? Fire. Fire. Wind. Fire. Symbols of the Holy Spirit. Why tongues of fire that light on and rest on each of them? Similar to the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and coming down on Jesus after His baptism, Luke records for us that the Spirit's coming were like flames of fire that divided and appeared on all of them, resting on them. Verse 4 says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages. Key word there, languages. That's also why uh, Luke records for us all the different countries represented there. That's why he does that. He puts all those countries because it's important that we understand that on the day of Pentecost, this speaking in tongues, if you will, was a speaking in languages. It was languages that these persons these people heard the magnificent acts of God. So the disciples who were mostly Galilean Jews, because they were from Galilee, they were thought to have been uneducated and unsophisticated, according to Acts 4.13. Remember when Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin and they impressed the Sanhedrin and they said, these men, I thought they were Galileans, unlearned and uneducated. But they were speaking languages that they had never heard of before and learned before. But notice how they were able to do that. Because the Spirit gave them the ability for speech. So indeed, it was a miracle of speaking. However, it was also a miracle of hearing. Because in verses 5-8, through eight, there were living uh, in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were astonished and amazed, saying, Look, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear in our own native language? And so it is a miracle of speaking. It's a miracle of hearing. It was wind. It was fire. And it was languages. But beyond all the symbols of wind and fire and the significance of languages and miracles of speaking and miracles of hearing, I want us to see another significant thing that I feel like is here that we might overlook if we're not careful. And that is the potential that God saw. So much so that He would pour out His Spirit upon Jerusalem in that day. Now, I know the day of Pentecost was in the foreordained plans of God. This did not happen by accident. This was not a coincidence. This was all along in the plans of God. The day of Pentecost was to come. And I know that the day of Pentecost was in fulfillment to the Old Testament prophecy and to the words of Jesus in the New Testament. But from the outside looking in, from a human perspective, I wonder... Did God see the great potential for the gospel to spread around the world? So much so that He would pour out His Spirit on the people that were there 
that day. Because what do we know about God? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 But we shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we shall be His witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. God so loved the world. Did God see from heaven the great potential for the gospel to spread around the world so much so that He poured out His Spirit on that day? Because all those Jews that were there in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Pentecost, they were not from Jerusalem. Not all of them. Many of them were not from there. They had their own homelands. But guess what happened on the day of Pentecost? Their lives were forever changed because they've met the Lord Jesus. And now Jesus is in their lives. And when they go home, the gospel of Jesus will also be on their lips. And the gospel will spread around the world just like God intended that the gospel go forth. Around the world. One thing the church needs is for God to pour out her spirit, his spirit on her. Here's some questions. Why should God pour out his spirit on us people? Why should God pour out his spirit on us? What would be gained by his doing so? Would the kingdom of God grow? Would his name be highly lifted up? Would his glory be seen by all? Would the gospel be heralded not only in this community, but throughout our state and around the world? Or would Kingsville Baptist Church try to take the credit? Would Kingsville try to build just bigger buildings and a bigger reputation would we promote ourselves to the people of Sinla or would we promote Christ? Why should God pour out His Spirit upon us? What potential does God see that He might pour out His Spirit on us? I don't know the answer to that. I think that's an introspective question that each of us have to wrestle with. Why would God pour out His Spirit upon us? What would we do if God were to do so in a powerful, powerful way? Would we be faithful? And then thirdly and finally, and I'll move quickly, in verses 14 through 41, we won't even read them. I'll spare you. <laughs> Peter begins to preach. And you'll just have to look at it later if you care to do so. Peter preaches a gospel message. I mean, this is the same Peter who just weeks ago was asked, you aren't one of the man's disciples too, are you? To which he replied, I am not. He was asked again, and he denied it again. Finally, one of the high priest's slaves, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, didn't I see you in the garden? And Peter denied even knowing the Lord Jesus. So why now is Peter preaching with such boldness? Well, the difference is the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit. And he begins to explain what's happening on the day of Pentecost. He tells them that this is in fulfillment partially of Joel chapter 2, 
verses 28 through 32. And that God says, I will pour out my spirit in the last days. And then he points to the crowd. He, he points the crowd to the life and death of Jesus in verses 22 through 24. And then Peter highlights the fact that Jesus was a descendant of David and how David spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. And so Peter reaffirms that they are all witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And he even says that God made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ or Lord and Messiah. Verse 26. So then finally in verses 37 through 41 when the people are under this gospel message preaching of Peter. They are cut to the heart, the Bible says. They're convicted. They just have realized, oh no, we just killed the Son of God. We just mistakenly thought that He was somebody else. But we just crucified Jesus. Can you imagine what they must have been feeling? And they say, what can we do? What must we do? Well, here's the good news, folks. Peter said, repent. The gospel has bad news and it has good news. The bad news is that somebody had to pay for your sins. But the good news is, Jesus did and He allows you to repent. And you can be saved. And on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says that nearly 3,000 people came to know the Lord Jesus that day. Why? Because they understood the magnitude of their sin. And they heard the gospel message to repent and trust in Christ. And they gave their hearts to Jesus in three thousand people were saved some of them would stay in jerusalem and become a part of the church that we read about in acts 2 verses 42 through 47 but then many of them would go back home to the wherever luke says they're from mesopotamia Cappadocia, phrygia pamphylia and guess what they will do they will take jesus with them they will take the gospel with them and the gospel of Jesus Christ would begin to spread around the world just like God wanted it to do, just like God intended for it to do. And Kingsville, what will we do with the, the relay torch that's passed to us? Will we be faithful to keep sharing the gospel around the world Will we be faithful? Will we take that torch and will we carry it? Will we be found faithful? What the church needs is more prayer. What the church needs is the power of the Spirit of God to be upon us. What the church needs is to continually be faithfully proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ and how He alone can save and set one free. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and we'll have a time of invitation. Maybe you're here today and 
you don't know the Lord Jesus and you know that there's an empty spot, an empty place in your heart, all I can do is encourage you to come to Jesus. I know no one or nothing that can fill that spot better than Jesus. If you need to be saved today, you come. Church, why should God pour out His Spirit upon us? What if God were to give you every one that you prayed for this week for their salvation? What do we need, church? What's God speaking to you about this morning? Would you be faithful during this time of invitation? This time is for you to do business with God. Not to look around at others. For you to do business with God. Let's stand quietly, reverently.